Inaction is just an unproductive form of action. So choosing not to act is itself a choice to act in a way that's guaranteed to fail. That was Matthew Erickson. He's the co-host of the Wealth, Power, and Influence podcast with Jason Stapleton. Matthew is an intensely well-read and educated individual who was just a great, great guest. And I know you all are going to really enjoy this episode. We talked about things such as economics, entrepreneurship, entitlement, Bitcoin, libertarianism, and much more. I'd like to thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. You know, like I said in the in the intro that the listeners just heard, you uh, co-host the uh, Wealth, Power, and Influence podcast, uh, formerly known as the Jason Stapleton podcast. But you know, before we kind of, of get into that that part of your life and where you're at now, you know, I was wondering if we could actually kind of hear your story. How did you actually get to be in this in this place in your life? It's it's actually a very interesting story. Um, I. Obviously, the subject of the, the podcast is, is mostly libertarian um, politics, but we've kind of been trying to get away from the politics just because we feel like there aren't that many solutions to be found there. And what we're most interested in is trying to solve, um, help people solve their own problems so that they can build their own wealth, power and influence themselves to make the, the negative things about politics as irrelevant in your personal life as possible. So that's kind of our focus with it. Um, but I actually first heard of the podcast um, as a listener myself. A couple of years ago, I was sort of new to um, the ideas of libertarianism, free market economics, that type of thing. And I, uh, I encountered Tom Wood's podcast and I listened to a bunch of episodes there and I really enjoyed it. And it was actually from, are you familiar with Gary North? Do you know who he is? Uh, vaguely, uh, but, but I haven't, uh, consumed a lot of his content. Okay. Yeah. So he was, he was actually the first introduction I had to this sort of, of life, the, the free market libertarian, um, view on the world. And so it was through Gary North that I found Tom Woods and I was looking for more podcasts related to libertarianism. So I just typed in libertarian podcasts and I found Jason Stapleton. So I started listening to him and he had his Facebook group that he'd created for people that listen to the show. So I joined the group and through the course of in interacting with people there, I ran into my future wife, who is Amy, the one moderating the group. And um, because of the group, we met each other. We started talking to each other offline. And um, eventually I lived in Washington at the time. And eventually she um, moved up to Washington to be with me and we got married and she had started working for Jason on the side and he was ready um, to bring someone on full time right around the time we wanted to move back down to LA because she's from LA originally. Uh, so we moved down here in October of 2018 and she's been working for Jason as like his business manager and he needed another, he'd run out of, of podcast um, co-hosts. He needed another host. And I was very interested in the subject matter and, uh, and I wasn't really doing anything else at the time. I was going to come down and look for work, but um, there was odds and ends stuff I could help with on the business. And then um, I did a couple of episodes of the podcast and we had a pretty good reception and he and I 
um, got along well. So that's how I wound up uh, co-hosting on the show with him. I've been there now for a little over almost a year and a half. And, you know, what, what kind of got you, you know, cause you said you were, you were pretty new when you started listening to the podcast to, you know, the concept of libertarianism and free market economics and, you know, kind of, you know, the, the fair of, of the, of the podcast and at least the, the foundation also of what you guys talk about on, on a regular basis, what kind of, where were you at prior to getting introduced to it? And what was it really that kind of clicked in your brain? Did you have an aha moment or was it more of kind of a, a, a slow evolution of your way of thinking in, into that, uh, into libertarianism and free markets? It's definitely been a, a gradual evolution. Um, I was raised pretty kind of fairly run of the mill conservative with definitely some like neocon sympathies. That was kind of the background I'd come from, but I'd sort of gotten disengaged from politics as I got into college and it was more focused on sports. And then I was, I can't remember exactly what sparked me to go down this road, but for my research writing class in college, I decided I wanted to write about the effects of central banking um, and, and, and specifically the effects of, of governments manipulating currencies and the, the correlation between that and eventual totalitarianism. And I knew basically nothing about it. It was just a, a provocative topic that seemed interesting. So I started researching it and ended up writing my, my research uh, writing essay on the basically um, advocating for a return to the gold standard kind of because of the, the, the connection between um, governments manipulating currencies and the connection to totalitarianism. So that was where my mind had been at the time. And that was what got me listening to Tom Woods. And then I started listening or started reading Murray Rothbard and For a New Liberty by Murray Rothbard was really probably the transformative work for me that took me to full-blown ANCAP right away. And then since then, I've continued reading and I, I, I consumed a ton of libertarian, like explicitly libertarian content for a long time, but... I was around the time that I reconnected with that I connected with Jason and, and ended up um, hosting the podcast with him. I was getting a little tired of the politics associated with libertarianism because I was like, well, the whole problem with all of this has been has been is, is politics is the nature of politics, the way that politics operates. So it's the solution isn't just get everybody voting libertarian. That's not that's not solving any problems. So I, I started expanding my mind and starting to look for, for other ideas and other possibilities. And so um, I would, it's probably easiest to say that I'm, I'm ANCAP. Um, that'd be just kind of the easiest shorthand, but um, I've, I've been, been reading and studying a lot more beyond that um, and trying to break out of just the, the generic um, democratic Republic political party mindset. Um, but yeah, so neocon background transitioned pretty quickly to ANCAP, and now um, I would I would probably be whatever is beyond ANCAP. I don't know what that is yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because that's that that's somewhat of of my story. I was I, I was one of those not one of the people that supported neocon policies just because that's kind of that happened to be the line without ever knowing that word really you know, what, uh, someone like Bill O'Reilly and, and Sean Hannity would say, but I, I remembered that you know, I wasn't old enough to vote, but I was a big fan of George W. Bush. A lot had to do with my social conservative nature. 
Um, but I remember everyone accusing him of being a neocon. And I, I thought to myself, well, if he's a neocon, then that's what I am. So I actually was one of those guys that I, I don't know if this makes me better or worse, but I actually went out and I went and got like Irving Crystal's book. And I, uh, you know, actually read, you know, basically the, the manifesto of neoconservatism, which is pretty much just a Trotskyite um, with a lot of bombing. <laughs> if you really kind of delve down into yeah. what, what, what neoconservatism is. Because, I mean, they all came out of that school. You had the uh, you, you had basically a split. You had the left and the, and the right uh, out of that uh, out of that school in the 60s. And and the the, the leftists kind of went down the kind of democratic socialist um, uh, to do full out communists. Or I guess they were full out communists. And then the rights basically um, went on to found what we now call neoconservatism. And it, it was funny. And that's what I was. I actually read the book and was you know all about this sort of thing and then it was uh, it was actually in college as well i got introduced to there was a libertarian not party but just libertarian meetup find out what it's about and i thought they were a bunch of weirdos who just wanted to have everybody uh you know i i, I went out thinking like well it's kind of interesting but i just i'm not pro prostitution with you know <laughs> that's that's what i came out of it with without realizing that it's not about being pro this it's just more of about you know not locking up people for something that doesn't you know uh, actually physically harm anybody but it's it's a it is an interesting journey and i'm always especially really happy to hear people who came out of the you know the neoconservative background to to you know kind of have a find sanity um in in kind of this insane politics of of either being a neoconservative and not knowing it or or knowing that you were um is is always really interesting for me to hear well, it's funny as I as I was well, listening to you respond there, I realized that there was one step in my in my my little journey that I kind of skipped, and that was um, what actually I, I remember now. What really got me back into studying um, stuff like this and getting to the gold standard was this was let, let me think. I must have been if I was in college, it must have been two thousand twelve, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, somewhere in there, and I was becoming very disenchanted with the fact that I had um, all this student debt piling up. And this guy, Bernie Sanders, and this this lady, um, Elizabeth Warren, were talking about, about student loan forgiveness. And I was like, well, that seems like a really, a really like I could use that. I, I want my loans forgiven. I feel like I got kind of, I feel like I got lied into college kind of. So I started studying it. I was like, well, what's, 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 what are the pros and cons here? I want to be able to defend this against other people. And I don't, I'd come from a sports analytics background, so I wanted to get in, into the the analytics side of it and be able to make like um, completely foolproof arguments against people. And so that was what led me down. I was like, well, these are guys, I don't, I don't know where to start, but I want to find someone I can trust. And my dad recommended this guy to me. And so I can trust my dad. So let me let me start doing some reading here and see. And that's how I got to Gary North. And and then from there, it was Tom Woods and, and, and Rothbard and uh, Hayek and Mises. And so I, I went down that full road, actually starting out as someone who wanted to defend Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, even though I'd come from a neocon background. So that's how I was. I was very much um, I think I, I have a, a leftist um, morality, like from the, the, the Jonathan Haidt Moral Foundations Theory um, perspective. Um, I'm very much, I tend to be very egalitarian in a lot of the ways that I look at stuff, but I'm from um, a conservative, very socially conservative background. Um, so it's kind of, a, I kind of came into it with a hodgepodge of perspectives 
and and inclinations and then from there i'm just very willing to to be persuaded by any compelling data that i see i'm not personally married to my belief system and i actually don't want to be i want to have the fewest axioms i possibly can that guide my life because i think that believing too much in a single belief system leaves you vulnerable to new data that could potentially come out that could change your perspective. And um, so I don't, I don't want to be someone who's blindly believing in a specific school of thought, even though data now exists that would disprove that. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, that was kind of one of the big things that I got out of my kind of, I guess you could say conversion experience to, to, to use kind of a parlance there, but, was that once I did, I realized that I had been wrong about something I believed very, very strongly in. And once I realized that, that was, I, I think the biggest lesson I got out of that was to be very skeptical of my own beliefs all the time. And that there's a lot of value in, you know, constantly reconsidering and not just blindly going, well, I believe this. So obviously if this person is countering what I believe in, they have to be wrong. And I found a lot of use in, you know, basically I, I forget who, you know, came up with, with the concept of where you steel man your opponent's arguments um, and, and try to come up with the, Oh yeah. Like Sam Harris. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, that exactly. And basically steel manning their arguments and going, and I found a lot of value out of that. And I think a lot of that came from, um, you know, c becoming a libertarian because, you know, I, I need to, if, if I can come up with the strongest argument for their side and it, it still doesn't hold up, then I know that I've, I've done a pretty good job of determining um, and then also, you know, uh, valuing my own evidence of where I'm coming from and in my own arguments and, and coming up with, with the, and I may find sometimes, and I have since then, finding out that, well, maybe both of us were wrong and, and there, there's a third or fourth or, you know, fifth option that, that is more true. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting in the way that that changed my viewpoint on the world. And I'm sure for, for you as well, in that, you know, not coming at everything from a very, like you said, as, you know, having a large set of axioms where, you know, you find out whatever fits those nicely and cleanly. And then that's where you kind of, but there, with that, you understand why, you know, I did it and you did it before and why a lot of people still do that or the vast majority of humanity does, because there's a lot of comfort in that, right? Where you have that to go, well, this is what's right. And I argue and, and value and, and defend what is, what is correct. And it's a very scary place at times to, to sit there and go, well, you know, I was wrong before and I may be wrong now. And what it, you know, maybe, maybe everything that I'm being presented is wrong. So what is the right, right answer or even the right question to be asking? Yeah. When we, we believe things that the human process of belief, I think is a, it's a, a threat avoidance mechanism. It's an evolved threat avoidance mechanism because we're we're surrounded by and inundated by so much data, so much input coming in at us all the time. And we can't we can't wrap our minds around how much data is hitting at us all the time. So our brains are actually um, filtering out a lot of the data and only giving us the stuff that's most relevant to us. And um, this is why you can train your brain to, 
to you, you have to teach your brain what it is, what's most relevant to you that you want to pick up on. And that's why when you start, you get the thing where you like, if you buy a new Honda, um, as you start driving around, suddenly before you didn't see any of the specific color Honda before, but now you see it everywhere. It's because you've trained your brain how to look for that thing. So our brains are filtering out all of this data all the time. And we have to come up with shorthand to uh, to explain to ourselves how the world works around us so that we can effectively operate within it. So part of that shorthand is, well, well, what all that shorthand becomes is a belief. And eventually we start piling one belief on top of another. And it means like once we create this consolidated belief where we can refer to a specific term and that term encapsulates all these ideas, it's like, okay, I thought about this whole package of, of ideas before, and I'm going to tie it up into a nice little package and put a bow on it. And on that bow, I'm going to write the name of the belief. That way, when I just read the bow, I can see, okay, that's that belief. And that's all those ideas that I thought about before. The problem is when you thought through all of those ideas and created that nicely formed little package, you were operating with all of the data that was available to you at that time. But it's possible that you've got new data available to you now. And if you were to think about all of those, those subjects again, it's like you have to pull that package down off the shelf and open it up and start pouring through it. And you're like, oh, actually, I assumed this thing and that thing wasn't true. So I need to rethink that aspect of what I was of, of what I was assuming at the time. And it, this can be very overwhelming because, again, this is this process is, is a function of trying to avoid threats, because really that's what the human the human experience is all about, trying to avoid threats all the time. That's what we're where we wake up in the morning and and. Um, depending on how we look at it, there's threats coming at us from every possible angle. So we're wanting to come up with the best possible way to overcome all of them. And um, so it can be terrifying to have to keep rethinking what you believe because it's it's the thing that you're using to, to avoid all of these threats. But for me, I found if I believe in the fewest things possible if I'm willing to be open-minded and if I train my brain to not latch on to ideas and just to be able to kind of view them impersonally and understand the pros and cons of them, then eventually I can retrain my brain to just be much more uh, like have my increased neuroplasticity and my brain be much more adaptable to every circumstance. And if your brain can adapt to every circumstance and it isn't weighed down by a bunch of old ideas, then it actually helps you think on your feet a lot better. And um, tying into what you're saying about steel manning, then you, when, when you are encountering a new argument, you want to do yourself the service of giving it its best due. Because if you misrepresent the argument and then think that you've knocked it down, what you're telling, you're, you're, you're telling a lie to your brain. Instead of actually dealing with that argument on its face, you've, you've distorted it and then you've dealt with the distortion of it. But the, the original argument is left um, untreated. So when you don't steel man another person's position, you are actually doing yourself a disservice. Um, and then by extension, a disservice to everyone that you're interacting with after that. And especially if you're on like a podcast or something and people are listening to you. Um, if you truly believe that your ideas are the best ideas, then uh, you want to have them be overcoming the best possible version of other people's ideas, because that just makes your own ideas look even better. Are you familiar with uh, uh, John Verveke at all in his uh, talks on the um, meaning crisis? No, no. How do you spell his name? Uh, V-E-R-V-A-E-K-E. And I... I will look him I up. I can't remember 
where I first came a- across him. Um, anyways, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try to try to think out loud, but it, I, his, his concept of it was, and I, I did an interview with him a little while back and I talk about him all the time on the podcast. People are probably tired of me bringing it up, but I, I think it's so poignant uh, to our times in that, you know, he talks about ba- basically it's like a 50 part series on YouTube of, of lectures and, it, he basically boil you know to boil it down he talks about how you know really since the renaissance but over the, like really the last couple hundred years you've seen the power of the of the church and religious belief um and then you know go on a on a downward slope and then probably since the vietnam war in the west or world war 2 in the west it, i mean it took a precipitous plunge um and with that he argues that you know this is very much along the lines of what you know nietzsche said god is dead people out often misrepresent that and say that Nietzsche was calling for God to die or whatever. And what he was really getting at was that that was the basis for our morality, for finding meaning. And, you know, there's, we don't have anything right now that fills that role. So you need to be very careful about that. And if you are going to say that, you know, that religion is dead or God is dead, however you want to phrase that, um, you need to have something to fill that for society, because that is what, you know, influenced uh, for for centuries are our concepts of what is moral and just and the basis of our laws and the foundations of society. And, and John goes into, you know, really more speaking from an American kind of Canadian uh, perspective is that, you know, we've, we've seen this now where we, you know, the, the height of rates of suicide and drug addictions and stuff like that is not just because we have Facebook now. Uh, or because somehow intoxicating substances are more readily available, or that life is just so bad. Life is actually better than it's ever been. But people don't have that meaning, whereas before you would have a a reason to act, to, to be, because you had this idea of um, this is what was expected of you, this is what required of you uh, in your life. And now we see people get, you know, like, crossfit and veganism or uh you know really into anime whatever it is you're trying to find um these meaning structures and the communities that form around it and it's you know politics or religion was politics for for many centuries um you know you had the religious wars you had the uh uh, the wars in europe uh, after the protestant reformation you had the crusades and as we've gotten less religious, then politics has just kind of more become a religion for a lot of people as well. And I, I think it's a, to I, I really agree with him. But uh, and I know that you haven't, as you said, listened to his stuff. But uh, I was just wondering what you, you know, your thoughts on on his uh, his concept. Yeah, I was sitting here just nodding along the whole time you were explaining that. I've said before that uh, that that religion is a fundamental constituent of the human psyche. Religion is not something that exists separate from us that we either engage with or don't engage with. There's formal religion or organized religion. Um, When you take specific religious concepts and you formalize them into doctrines and you have specific like practices and beliefs associated with that. But religion is a part of every human mind. Every single person is religious because everybody has some sort of ultimate highest moral that they are striving toward, um, whether that moral is 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 a, a actual god that they've they've personified that they've anthropomorphized, 
or if it's some sort of higher ideal. Like for some people, it might be egalitarianism or it might be uh, hedonism or it's, it's there's there's some sort of a um, metaphysical, like esoteric thing that you relate to as your God. And every single person has one. It's the way that the human psyche works um, because we're not we have, there's, there's, there's more than just our physical selves. There's the, the non-physical that we, that occupies our mind and these concepts, abstract concepts that, that draw us, that we pursue. And, uh, we have the ability to choose between which concepts are interesting to us and, and which ones we want to pursue and which ones we don't. Um, and that, that choice is the action. Like every single action is a choice. Every, like James Clear says that, that every act you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. Um, and, and not acting is acting is, is an, is an action. So if you choose not to act, you're still choosing an action. You're just choosing the action of inaction. Um, so meaning is found in the pursuit of that higher, um, that whatever that higher, um, essence or, or, or being or concept or, or ethos is that you, that you value as your highest, as your highest thing. Um, that's where you find meaning. Me, a lot of people treat meaning as a um, as something that is a an objective property of the universe. Um, and I have, I admit, um, I've enjoyed contemplating the idea that perhaps meaning itself is like a quantum field, perhaps. And and you know, maybe down the road we'll discover something like that. But as far as I can tell right now, um, meaning is not something that you discover. Meaning is something that you create. And you create that meaning through um, the pursuit of a, a higher form of morality, some sort of, of, of bringing a better world to bear, bringing in, taking the world that's around you and, and organizing it in such a way that you bring a, a better world um, into being. Um, that, that's where you get, that's where meaning is found. So uh, this is actually, this was a product of me um, engaging in, in alternate ways of thinking. Um, if you, uh, if you, if you catch my drift, um, I went down a pretty profound rabbit hole and, and I realized that, um, every one of us is, is pursuing something that matters to us. We think everything, we think, we think things matter and that's where we find our meaning. Um, but really as far as I can tell, um, within my own experience, nothing that I do actually matters because someday down the road, you know, whether it's tomorrow or next year or in a million years or in, in a thousand million years, eventually there's going to be the heat death of the universe. Everything is going to burn up and, and, and go away. All of us will be forgotten. And perhaps this isn't true, but as far as we can tell with our, with our senses right now, that's what's guaranteed. Anything better than that would be a bonus, but I can guarantee you at the very least, that's what's going to happen. So because of that, Nothing that you do today matters. Um, and people see that, they hear that and they think, oh, that's a really depressing message. Like this guy's a real downer. But I, I, I want to flip that mentality on its head and say, because nothing that I do today matters, that means everything that I choose to do matters immensely. Because I could be choosing to do anything with my life. None of it matters. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether I, I pursue this job or that job. Eventually, nobody's going to remember me and, and you know, everyone's going to go on with their lives. So what I do choose to do suddenly becomes very meaningful because I'm taking the time that I have and I'm investing it in something. And why am I investing it in that thing? 
somehow that thing must, I must derive meaning from the experience that I have with that thing. So this, this process of, of recognizing that nothing that you do actually matters. There isn't some standard that you need to be held up to that you're not fulfilling because you're on your own. Nobody cares about you. Ultimately, you are on your own. You get to pursue the best life that you want to pursue. And the act of pursuing that is where you find your meaning. But if you think that all that there is, is just this physical life, um, I don't know. I, 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 th- I think that there's much more uh, to reality than just what's physically in front of us. And I think that there's been, there's been mathematical proofs of that as well, but that's starting to get me into, into territory that is, is beyond my um, ability to actually explain and get into. But um, yeah, I think that, that what you said about religion and politics, that, that religion used to be politics and now politics is religion. In, in all these cases, we've been dealing with a specific type of, um, of a relationship with the metaphysical that people are um, creating belief structures that they're relying upon, depending upon on faith and believing that, that, that no, this thing actually is the highest order to, to, to um, pursue. So for libertarians, it might be freedom. It might be um, individual choice, something like that. For uh, Republicans, it might be the family or it might be um, nationalism, some type of some type of abstract concept that they um, have attached themselves to and that they revolve all of their activities around. Um, for Democrats, it's some type of egalitarian, egalitarianism or something like that. But um, each of these things serves a specific purpose in the human psyche. And um, we as, as beings, we can't operate without having that higher purpose. So it's up to each of us individually to determine what our higher purpose is going to be and then act in accordance with that. And as, as that concept has been, there's been like a denial of, of higher purposes. There is no higher purpose. All there is, is just, is just what's physically around us, what's physically testable. And, um, you know, nothing beyond that exists. There's no, nothing else that, that matters beyond that. Um, and I think that that is very damaging to the human psyche. And that's specifically what, what Nietzsche was calling out was like, he said, it wasn't a, it wasn't him exulting in the fact that God is dead. He was saying, God, whatever, whatever our higher purpose is that we've arranged ourselves morally in pursuit of, we've done away with that thing. We've written him out of our narrative. So if we don't replace him with something else, then very bad things are going to happen. And what do you know, in the 20th century, some very bad things happen. So I think that it's no wonder that um, we're starting to see a revival after the 20th 20th century. um, We're starting to see a revival of people um, realizing that there's more to life than just what's physically around us and starting to orient their lives um, with respect to that again. mentioned about acting and not acting i don't know if you've you've probably heard that that quote before from the uh, lutheran minister the german lutheran minister dietrich bonhoeffer before um where he said although that some have said that that it's misattributed to him and it's just an unknown quote but regardless of the fact uh he was a, a very uh, esteemable man but the the quote was silence in the face of evil is itself evil god will not hold us guiltless not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. Yeah. And he was eventually uh, executed um, in, during World War II by the, by the Nazis for his basically anti, um, 
anti-state, anti-Nazi uh, uh, policies that that he uh, extolled to his to his flock. Um, but you know, I one hundred percent believe in that that concept. That that when I first heard that quote, that's kind of really what kind of pegged a very important thing um, in my mind. You know, the same as what you were getting at was that, but you know, by not doing something, you are doing something, right? If you don't, um, if you decide to just let whatever it is that is, you know, a, a poison in your life, whether it's a relationship or it's a, a, a habit or a addiction or something like that, by not doing something, you are in fact voting for that that type of lifestyle uh, for yourself. And it's, it's very hard to find meaning, um, I think, because of this, because a lot of people have some, it, they, they, they grow up and, you know, it, it, this is not a, like an anti-consumerist rant or anything like that, because I, I love, you know, where we live and I love the, you know, the type of lifestyles that we, we are allowed to. But I think that, you know, it, it does kind of go along with that adage of, of, you know, hard times, you know, make strong men, strong men, make easy times, easy times, make, uh, you know, weak men. And I think that we have become very complacent about what is important in that we have that baggage of, you know, for most of human history, just trying to find food, just trying to find shelter, all those types of things. I mean, some people say that there's a, a genetic memory. I don't know if I necessarily believe that, but I think there's uh, uh, gen things got coded into our genes uh, to make us act in certain ways, just because whoever was better at, at doing these things were would survive and procreate. And I, I think that we so long were searching for just not just comfort, but just survival that now we, we uh, that was their, you know, basically their meaning in life was just to survive, was to um, find meaning in their rituals, uh, what, you know, wherever they may have been. And then now we've just gotten so complacent in that we've, you know, we, we've achieved. So now we can just kind of basically just just be lazy slobs and and just kind of like bum around life until we you know hit 50 or 55 and then go hey wait you know i, I wanted to do something else with my life yeah this it's it's maslow's hierarchy of needs um we're we're now at the point where all of our our needs are so well or so easily provided that like at the bottom you have your physiological needs um so things like sex and food and sleep those types of things. And then you have uh, safety. So you need to be able to have a home. You need to have a community around you that, that, um, you know, you can, you can outsource protection of yourself, that type of thing. And then you have the love and belonging. So you have your, which is also community as well, friendship and family. Um, and then the second from the top is, is esteem. So actually having like relationships that um where, where people feed into your self-esteem, people make you feel good about yourself. Um, these are all luxuries once you have the all the the bare necessities taken care of but then at the very top you have the self-actualization part which this one graphic i'm looking at here it says it's morality creativity spontaneity problem solving lack of prejudice acceptance of facts when people talk about um things like racism or injustice in society or um or things like like prejudice or institutionalized issues, those types of things that like, they don't realize it, but they're expressing a, a profound sense of privilege. The fact that they even get to tackle those, that doesn't make those, those issues non-issues, but I think that they, 
they, they have a lack of awareness of just how good they actually have it. That the world is, is better, is, is better now than it used to be. And it's getting better every day. Um, it's hard to tell sometimes because the media has a vested interest in trying to portray things as, um, as bad and terrible as possible because they're basically the foot soldiers of, of politicians who are striving to gain more and more control and power. And the only way that you're going to get control and power from people is by convincing them that they need to delegate away their own power, which the only way you do that is by convincing them that there's some sort of a threat or, or, a um, a terrible thing out there that's out to get them. So, um, we, in the, in the 21st century, we have, um, tremendous opportunities for, being able to transcend what what basically any other human ever has before, where we're not worrying about the bare necessities. Anymore. I mean, poverty, I mean, not poverty, but um, obesity is a, a greater threat than starvation. That's insane. Um, we have so many uh, goods and services surrounding us all the time that we're in, a, we're in an era of abundance and the, an era of physical abundance. And because we're in an era of, of physical abundance, I think that we're, um, we've reached an era of, of, of meaning lack, um, whatever the opposite of abundance would be at a dearth of meaning. Um, because it's, it's very easy to find meaning in your life when you, uh, are sleeping in a cave and you wake up with a bear sniffing around you and you have to fight for your life and you have to go hunt a deer and make a fire to try to keep yourself warm. Like it's very easy to find meaning in all of those things, because if you don't, then things are going to get very miserable very fast. But when all of that stuff is provided for you at the literal push of a button around you all the time, it's very difficult to figure out what the thing is that you need to do that's going to provide you um, the most fulfillment possible. And um, it's very easy to get um, into addictions. Like being happy, struggling with addiction is another thing that's a, that's a product of abundance. To be able to have so much abundance of a thing that you get addicted to it, um, this is just yet, yet more evidence of how privileged that we actually are. Um, but the, the thing about acting or not acting is that, um, it applies in the, like the Bonhoeffer quote, um, in the sense that you like not stepping up to defend someone is, um, in, in some sense, the same as, as attacking them or, um, by letting them be attacked. But at the same time, even in your own life, like if you feel, if you've had this idea of something that you've wanted to pursue, like a blog that you want to start or a podcast or, um, a business idea that you have, or some sort of idea or venture that you want to put out into the into the universe, but you're you're waiting because you're afraid that you're not going to be good enough, or that um, you know you're just afraid you don't want to take the first step yet because um, you don't know exactly how to do it and you want to make sure that it's the best possible. Um, realize that by not taking the first step, you are taking the first step. You're just taking a step of of inaction. Uh, inaction is just an unproductive form of action. So choosing not to act is itself a choice to act in a way that's guaranteed to fail. So if you aren't choosing to take a step today, what you're doing is you're guaranteeing failure for the future. You're better off taking a step now, just doing something. Um, though what's the, uh, the, uh, um, a thing from uh, Confucius or, or, or Zen Cohen or something like that, that said that the, the journey of a thousand steps begins or the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Um, you have to start moving forward before you can change the direction that you're moving. But the first thing you have to do is act. And as long as you aren't acting, you're, you're choosing to remain where you are. Um, and you will find meaning as if you don't, if you feel like you don't have meaning now, just start doing something. And pretty soon the meaning will become clear to you. Well, that reminds me of a, a quote 
in in permaculture. I don't know if you're you're familiar with that at all. Um, but you no, know, it, it's most people associate with gardening, but it it, it uh, it's a lot. You know, the lessons in it are a lot more wide ranging than than just that. But uh, it, it's another it's another rabbit hole that you kind of go down into. I, I think it, it teaches, uh, it taught me a lot about like pattern recognition um, because within natural systems, there's always patterns uh, or the, the concept of uh, uh, at the fringe, at the edge, like between like a, uh, a savanna and a forest, that, that edge effect is where your most productivity is, is right on the edge of that forest and that savanna, the edge between two systems. Um, but there's a, a saying there as well that, you know, the best, I can't remember who it's attributed to, but the, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. And the second best time is right now. And I, I think that that does feed oh, a lot. I like that a lot. Yeah. And it's, it's, it kind of, you know, that, that really helped kind of consolidate in my, my thinking process as well of, of doing a lot of the things that I go, well, you know, I can do that later, you know, when the kids are older or, you know, the kids are out of the house or something like that. And I, I don't practice it perfectly, but uh, you know, it is the the best time to do that and waiting until, you know, and it's never too late, even if you're 50 right now listening. I mean, you can always go and do that, but it, it would have been better to do that when you're in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s. Uh, but when you're 50, it's still a better time than waiting until you're 70 uh, to do that thing that you really wanted to do. Uh, you know, it's just, I think that, you know, like, we, like we've been saying, a lot of people have a hard time finding that meaning and you can still keep your day job or whatever, if, you know, if that's, what's paying the bills for the, for the time being, but, you know, find that, find that thing in your life that you are really passionate about. And likely uh, if you're working for somebody, um, uh, you know, mo or I should say a lot of us work for somebody and you may be working for somebody and you really like what you do and that that's great. But for most people, it's kind of a way to, to, to make money and pay the rent and, you know, get food on the table, but there's that thing that you really like to do. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's not just watching you know, football uh, with your friends, although it may be, but whatever that is, find that thing and, and do that and try to find a way to develop that into what you do. And I, you know, we, like we, you guys talked about on your show at the very end of the year, or maybe it was at the very beginning of the year. I can't remember. You were going over uh, the, you know, the, the stats from basically the last decade or two. And that I, I believe it was like in the last 10 or 20 years, the world has gone from like 30% of people lived in poverty down to what's like 14 or 17%. Um, it was something have, like that. Yeah. I can try and pull up the graphic here while you're talking. Yeah. And it, it, but that was just what was amazing. I mean, especially us in the West is that we have, you know, it, it, yeah, we don't have that ability like our parents did to go work in a factory and you could buy that home in a car but you also have to remember, you know, they may have had like one TV and a couch, you know, and not a five bedroom house. But, you know, as far as we're kind of putting it in context, so we don't have the same opportunities, but I think we have better opportunities. You have the ability to reach, a, you know, a worldwide marketplace if you're selling, you know, whatever it is, your soap, your necklaces, you know, guitar lessons. Whereas 50 years ago during your parents' time, depending on your age, um, you know, they would have only been able to market to just that local, that town of a thousand people or 10,000 people or whatever. And now you have just so many opportunities and going back to, to you're talking about with college and, and student loans is I, I think it is insane that it is still pushed in schools and it shows you just kind of this stagnant mindset 
uh, where it's like, go, go to college and, you know, figure out what you want to do. And you would never tell a child at any other point in their life with any other question of, yeah, sure. You know, you may, you know, accrue $40,000 or or $100,000 in debt to find out if you want to do that or not. I mean, nobody would ever tell that child, you know, if somebody, if your kid wanted to be in a band and they said, I need to take out a loan for $100,000 to start this band, you would never say, absolutely, that's a great idea. Um, and it may be a great idea if they are, uh, uh, you know, if they're really good at it. But, you know, most people would think that that's crazy, but per- thinking it's perfectly fine to do that for for education. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, you're going to do this band and it may or may not be productive. You know, it could be that I take out this $100,000 loan to, to be in this band and then it just doesn't work out. And by the end of it, I realize I don't want to be in a band at all. I actually want to go, um, you know, be a, a, an accountant. Like, yeah, it's just it's madness. There's nobody that would ever suggest that. And there, there's nobody that would underwrite that probably, you know, for that loan. But, you know, the big difference, too, is is if that did fail and you really did hit hard times after that, not that I encourage people to go into bankruptcy or anything like that, because it's a, it's a really it's a really bad thing and it affects your life for a really long time. Um, I haven't personally done it, but people I know that have, it's, it's not a fun trip and it's not just some easy magic wand and then you restart again. Uh, but you know, there's at least somewhat that option of discharging that debt. Uh, but whereas with student loans, you're never going to get rid of that. You're, you will carry that, that, uh, that stone around your neck until it's, it's either gone or you die. And even when you die, whatever you have left that gets sold off is going to be a, be used to pay that off. It's absolute madness that people can't discharge student loans in bankruptcy. And, and this is the, the area where I actually, some of my, maybe my leftist, this might be my leftist morality or something like that. But, and this is where I kind of depart, depart from the ANCAPs a bit is that I don't, I think that that issue, the student loan issue is much more complex than simply Oh, these people took out the loans. You just got to deal with it and move on to the next thing. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to that. And in general, I think that that is true. The problem is the people who took out these loans were not necessarily um, fully, fully cognizant of what they were doing. And they were surrounded by an entire world of, of propaganda that was constantly telling them that if I don't do this thing, then I'm going to be a complete failure. And that sort of, of propaganda from every person that you know and respect is very, very powerful. So if we just say, eh, you're stuck with it, just deal with it. Everyone else had to, you know, just, just move on. That's, while that may be correct, that's not persuasive and nobody is going to, um, it, it's not going to be something that actually happens. And this is where um, reading um, the James Byrne and the Machiavellians is one of the things that really got me um, thinking down these lines that in an ideal world, yes, we would just tell everybody who took out student loans that has immense debt, just deal with it, suck it up and, and move on. But in, a, in, a, in the real world, that's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because you've just created a massive avenue for people, for, for craven um lying crooks who crave political power to to come in and offer a solution to these people that that none of the rest of us are going to like. So there's the difference between the the ideal world and the real world and we have to operate in the real world. In the ideal world, um the the ethic that I support would say, yeah, you're stuck with it. In the real world, 
I know that if if people don't suggest a better solution, then what's going to happen is that the the federal government is going to step in and they're going to socialize all of that. And that's how it's going to be. Um, and I think that it would behoove a lot of libertarians to stop. There's nothing persuasive about pounding on your keyboard, ah, deal with it, millennial, and just moving on. They're, they're just going to block you out and not pay attention to you. And they're because you're not you're not showing any empathy, you're not appreciating appreciating the perspective they're coming at you from, and you don't have to def, you don't have to endorse them. You don't have to say, um, yeah, you're a poor little victim. But approaching them with empathy makes them much more likely to be open to what you suggest or what you have to say, and then you can have some influence on the process. So, um, I, like, I don't want to get deep into the weeds of specific policies and stuff, but so a suggestion that you could have along those lines would be, okay, well. Um, look at the negative effect of all of these. Look at how these these colleges are profiting immensely off of um, all these all these kids who are basically getting deceived into massive debt. These colleges have massive um, endowments, so perhaps endowments get seized to pay off the debt. Um, coming up with some type of a, of a more clever solution that. Um, is is better than because if you don't come up with a clever solution like that, you're going to get something that's you're not going to get your ideal solution. You're not going to get the oh, everyone just moves on and sucks it up. That's not going to happen. What's going to happen is taxpayers bail out the, the the people, and I don't want the taxpayers bailing them out. I would rather have the not ideal, but still much better solution of um, of of university endowments get seized to, to discharge student debt. I, I would much prefer that. So. It's thinking about these things, number one, from a position of empathy. And um, when you're when you're empathetic, you're far more persuasive. If you see things through other people's eyes, you're much more likely to be able to get them to do what you want. And then also living in the world that we exist in rather than the world that we wish that we existed in. The world we wish we existed in would be where saying, oh, you, you made the choice. You just get to deal with it. Where that would be persuasive. In an ideal world, it would be persuasive to say that and people would be like, oh yeah, you know what? You're right. Um, I'm just going to suck it up and pay off my student loans and move on with my life. That, But that's not going to be persuasive and people aren't going to do that. They're going to look for another alternative and that other alternative is going to be much worse. Um, but then the one other thing I wanted to say related to what you were talking about was that um, we, we do have everything much better now. And People talk about how oh you can't support a, a you know in, in the 1950s you could support a family of three on a single on a single salary and now you can't do that and my response to that would be of course you can do that you just have to live with the standard of living of someone from the 1950s so someone in um, now like a like a, a two parent home with three kids where just the dad works and the mom stays at home you probably aren't going to be able to have. Um, uh, all of the amenities that you possibly want, unless the, the dad has an amazing salary, but you're probably not going to have all the amenities that you want um, and be able to uh, still like live the exact life that you want. But think about yourself living in, in, a, in the, the lifestyle of the 50s. So you might not have a refrigerator. Um, you might not have a car, or at the very least, you'll have one car and it's going to be um, a pretty basic car. You probably aren't going to have air conditioning. You're probably not going to have a TV. You might have a radio, but probably not. Um, and depending on where you live, it's possible you may not even have electricity. Um, and you're definitely not going to have smartphones. You're definitely not going to have um, Netflix or an Xbox or anything like that. You're going to live a very, you're not even going to have email. You're going to write letters to people. You, maybe you'll have a typewriter, maybe not even that. Like you can, you can have the standard of living 
of, or you can have a, a, a the the purchasing power of someone in the 1950s. You just have to have the lifestyle of someone in the 1950s, and nobody wants that lifestyle because even the most impoverished people today have access to things like cars and smartphones and air conditioning and TVs. All of and and all of these things are readily available to even the most impoverished people, and that's a testament to just how good life is. But in order to take advantage of how good life is now, you have to be making positive choices. You have to embrace the reality that where you are now is your fault. And this isn't compelling to a lot of people, but it's like I, the other thing I said before, this at the, at the front of it sounds very negative and, uh, and like not a very fun message, but it's actually incredibly empowering because if you, if where you are now is your fault, that means that you are empowered to put yourself into a different place. If where you are now is someone else's fault, then that means you're helpless to get out of where you are until someone else comes to save you. And unfortunately, nobody's coming to save you. So some people will say, well, I'm just a product of my environment. Sure, that's true. You are a product of your environment. That's why they say that you're the average of of the, the five people you spend the most time around. But here's what nobody tells you. Your environment is a product of your choices. And that may not be true when you're a child, but there comes a point where after you've been adult and been an adult for a little while, you get to choose what your environment is going to be. And you will ultimately become a product of that. So if you're in a place that you don't want to be, that means that you haven't made the right choices to put yourself where you want to be. If you start making the right choices, if you start acting, if you look around at the abundance around you and start thinking creatively and coming up with a way to, to, to provide uh, something that other people don't have right now, if you make yourself valuable to other people, the magic and wonder of capitalism is that those people will give you resources in return for the great things you provided them. And the more great things you provide to people, the more resources you'll get in return. And the more resources you get in return, the better you'll be able to improve your environment. And as you improve your environment, you will improve. And this is, this is like a mathematical certainty. This is the way that people drag themselves up out of poverty. But in order to do that, they have to have access to the means to do it. And so this is where you get, for someone who's listening to this who may not be a libertarian or may not be coming from a libertarian perspective, this is the reason for free markets is that the average person needs to have um, accessible to them the best possible means for being able to drag themselves up out of poverty. And that means they need the lowest possible standard of living or, or cost of living around them. Um, and then, of course, obviously, government regulation is what drives that up. But um, that was what I wanted to say, that you're a product of your environment, um, but your your environment is a product of your choices. So choose to surround yourself with an environment that will create the best you that you want to have. Well, you know, you talked about uh, or you mentioned you know, about, you know, libertarians kind of not having, you know, when we a lot of times when we approach things like that uh, or these questions, we kind of take these these hard lines or whatever or um you know kind of going back as well to to living in one of the best times that we that we have is that i've always thought you know in in realm of in the realm of libertarianism and and just promoting liberty it's kind of what you guys did by rebranding to wealth power and influence just versus talking politics and but this also kind of works its way into bitcoin which is kind of uh, the main focus of, of my podcast, but uh, not exclusively, is that, you know, same as libertarians, we focus a lot on 
educating people to do the right thing, right? I, I don't know how uh, deep you are in, into Bitcoin and how much you've used it, but, you know, instead of just having just like an app wallet on your phone, we really recommend at the bare basics of using something like a hardware wallet. Um, there's even more secure ways of, of holding your Bitcoin and everything like that. But, you know, it's 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 a, it's complicated, and but it does offer more sovereignty over their wealth. But I think that, you know, the same way that you guys decided to in rebranding is that, you know, Bitcoiners and libertarians as well should focus on basically creating the tools. And a lot of people have done this. Um, somebody, uh, you know, like what they did with, uh, with the, the Ghost Gunner at Defense Distributed, things like that, where you basically make sovereignty the easiest thing for people to do because this is not meant in a necessarily bad way, although it sounds like that people are lazy and they will always pick whatever is the easiest thing. This is why a lot of people are more overweight because it's a lot of e it's a lot easier just to pick, you know, that thing that you pop in the oven or grab a pizza than it is to, you know, meal prep and 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 research and do the proper nutritional thing. Whereas if you make it real easy and, and companies are doing this now in as far as nutrition. Uh, are making it a lot easier to do that. But if you make the tool where it just becomes the, oh, well, this is easier than doing the wrong thing, you you basically make sovereignty uh, the, the the default choice and you, you make them choose the right thing just based off of human nature versus trying to spend, you know, like what we had, which was years of trying, of, of listening to these things and, you know, speeches or what people said that we thought was crazy, but, and then eventually coming around to it. Whereas if you just make the default option, you don't have to change their mind. It's just already what they do. Yes, yes, yes. This is exactly where people talk about the Liberty movement. And I think this is the direction that the Liberty movement needs to be going. And it ties back into what I was saying a minute ago about empathy, that, you have to have empathy for the people who are going to be using the service that you're 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 promoting. So if you're promoting Bitcoin, then you need to have empathy for the people who are taking it on. You can't just tell them my thing is the best and you should be using it. And if you don't, you're an idiot. Nobody, nobody's going to find that compelling. That's not a persuasive message to people. Just the same if you're saying politics is bad and 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 um, government is evil, and so we need to um, embrace the free market. To someone who's not already inclined to hear that, that's not a compelling message, which is I, why I think that the Libertarian Party is is never going to go anywhere. It's never going to accomplish anything because the only way that it will ever be successful is if it isn't necessary anymore. Because if people are inclined to vote Libertarian, then they're already inclined to move beyond politics. So you don't need the Libertarian Party. But if you have empathy, if you have a an appreciation for where people are today then you can craft the best possible offer to them in from their perspective that will get them onto your platform or whatever solution you're wanting to offer. The reason that the government exists as it does today is because there is popular demand for a government that exists as it does today. Ironically, the market is the reason for the government's presence because people, when they go out into the market and they can choose, they say, well, if I want national defense, the only thing available to me is the federal government. So that's where I'm going to go. If I want to have uh, a public school system, something with the, the offerings of a public school system, the only thing that's available is the government public school system. So that's where I'm going to go. And it's not, it's not their fault that we haven't provided them with a better solution. We're dealing, we're dealing in this abstract ideal world where we're like, well, hey, ideally in, in, in a, in a libertarian society, there would be a, um, 
like uh, um, defense organizations that operated with contracts and et cetera, et cetera. Okay, great. Build it. Create the thing that you want other people to use and then persuade them why it's the lowest cost option for them, why it's the best option for them. This is why like I've, I've thought about um, uh, one of the things we could have named the show, which we definitely weren't going to, was make libertarian capitalist, capitalist again. Focus on making um, offerings to people that they're interested in. Meet them on their terms. Don't try to drag them in and beat them over the head and try to make them see the world through your eyes. Put yourself in their shoes. See the world through their eyes and then make them an offer that they can't refuse. This is basic marketing. This is when when you have a business that you're running and people aren't coming to buy your product, you don't say, "Oh, these stupid idiots, why don't they why don't they Google for my company name and and come buy the thing I'm offering?" Cuz they don't know what you are. They've never heard of you. It's your responsibility to get in front of them with an offering that's going to be most persuasive and compelling to them. And I think that liberty-minded people, libertarians in general, uh we we see the world through our own eyes and we just think people are too dumb, blind, and stupid to choose what's what's best for them. If that's true, which it probably is, then that means the onus is on us to, to create the libertarian world we want to live in in the way that will appeal the most to people who are dumb, blind, and stupid. Well, and that's why I think that's so important for you know, for, for those two, two sides, right. Cause you have to introduce people to these, you know, cause we say that, I mean, cause I, I see the libertarian party in a way is somewhat being, you know, there, there's two camps, basically there, there's some people that see it as a way to affect real change through politics. We'll get elected. We'll do the things. And then there's other people who think, uh, you know, the LP would be something that's good for basically just like the Ron Paul campaign where it's, you know, it would have been nice if we, you know, could have gone farther and actually gotten the nomination, all that kind of good stuff. But it was what it, its main goal really was, was just spreading the message. Right. So if you have these tools, you also have, a, have to have a way of people to be able to get introduced to them, um, under, understand them as well uh, to a point, like you still need that ease of access, but if nobody knows about it and that's why it's, I think it's really important for people that can do content creation to be able to, kind of tap into that and become part of the zeitgeist um, because you can have, I mean, cause we have something like the signal app, right. For texting. And that's great. It, it encrypts it. Both people are using it. It's end to end encryption. Uh, anybody, even if they intercept those messages, it's completely garbled unless, you know, you have access to one of those phones. And the, the issue that they have, cause it's twofold is that a lot of people just don't know about it or know or want to, you know, or, have no way of knowing that it even exists or why it's important. Right. So there's, there's that, that aspect of education and also of just kind of countering uh, narratives that you find that like we were talking about where, you know, if you're uh, somewhat conservative, then you watch Fox news or whatever they say is, is good. And, you know, I think, you know, what, one of my um, favorite guests and I, I mean, with that, we're both fans of, of Michael Malice. Yes. And, you know, because I find his his witty, his, you know, his snark uh, is but that his snark that disguises a, a lot of great insight as well. I, I think it's just really superbly well placed for the time, uh, you know, in his, his take on on the corporate media influence in America. And I love that term as well, because uh, I think it, it really plays well to change the, the way that uh, a lot of people on the 
someone in, in the conservative side is not really going to be taken aback by that that term where I think that's more level that somebody in the left to, to hear that term corporate media. Right. And then go, well, what are you talking about? And then start to question of, oh, well, these guys who I agree with over at MSNBC and maybe CNN, I really agree with. But, hey, you know, we're supposed to be against all this centralized, consolidated media uh, product. And they're also owned by the same people. Maybe there's something going on there. But, you know, how do you see uh, that that role of, of, well, I guess we kind of already intimated it, but the, how the media and uh, the corporate media plays in American and just global life. But how do you see us uh, or just anybody who can see through that stuff being able to to counter those narratives? I think that right now the corporate media, I, I love, I love malice as well. And, and the best thing about him is that not only is his, is his online personality just exquisite and his, his humor and his insightfulness, but offline in person, he is one of the most genuine, sincere, kind, nice people that you'll ever meet. He's a, he's an absolute gem, but I think he's his book, the new right, by the way, if you really want to understand um, the Trump phenomenon and the way that, um, what's going on with the media today and um, how much of this is a, is a charade being put on to try to control the way that you think. Read his book, The New Right. Um, it's, it's, that's one of the more transformative books that I've ever read in terms of my own, um, my own view of the world and my, my own personal philosophy. But I think that right now, the great value of the Trump moment, the great value of the Trump election was the way that he stripped back the the veil pulled back the veil and revealed the you know the man the wizard of oz the man behind the mask um he has he has revealed the media for what they are which is which is just um political activists they're political activists masquerading as um magnanimous journalists or something and so they'll use the term journalists oh this is an attack on the free press this is an attack on journalism when really they're not these aren't free journalists these are these are um, foot soldiers of a corporate enterprise that traffics in um, fear and hysteria for the sake of clicks. And the more that people are are beginning, the, the, the less that people are taking them seriously, the more frantic and hysterical they're having to get to try to draw people's attention. Joe Rogan gets more views in a month than CNN. These these alternative media outlets are starting to pull people's attention away, and when they're starting, so much of the American empire has depended upon um, people believing in the mainstream narrative. Narrative control is incredibly important for um, a a political elite that wants to maintain control of a country. They have to maintain control of the narrative, and the narrative is breaking down because of the nature of the internet. Because anybody can get on the internet right now and start having a conversation like the one we're having and they can broadcast it out to literally anybody in the world can access it and listen to it. Um, it's, it's raising the entry cost for um, someone to get into the business of media because of this, the people who are already established in media are freaking out. And we're, I think what we're starting to see is their death throes. But as long as like, like malice says that the war, the war will be won when something I'm, I'm going to butcher his 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 saying, which drives him crazy, but I can't remember it exactly right now. It's basically the war will be won when the average American sees um, uh, the corp sees corporate journalists in the same way they see tobacco executives. 
And that's exactly what it is. Corporate journalists are not objective, open-minded, reasonable people who are just trying to make the world a better place. They may think that they are, but they're part of a machine that is um, that is, is squashing dissent and um, functioning as something that, that Goebbels could have only dreamed to have the influence that they do, to be able to control thought and to be as transparently corrupt as they are and still think that they can play victim. Um, so I think that this is, this is the area where, where liberty-minded people need to be. And this is, I don't know how much, how much of your audience would have been tapped into like the, the Dave Smith, Nick Sarwark debate. Am I, if, are people following that at all? Um, I don't know how tapped it. I mean, like I said, I, I focus a lot on Bitcoin, but I started to to branch out as of recently into either topics that I, I think are necessary to really understand. Because, uh, you know, to digress just a just a second, I I realized that you know that Bitcoin was more than just a, a technology, and you know, and more than just a simple tool for for sovereignty. Um, and that to really it's a philosophy. Yeah, um, you know, we we talked a little bit about you know, uh, when we're talking about religion and being hardwired in it. And I, I've become increasingly convinced by this idea that uh, it, that Bitcoin itself is becoming a, a religion as a as basically an evolutionary step in that, you know, a lot of evolutionary biologists have said or psychologists have said that, you know, religion is 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 possibly the thing that we develop to help us basically as a species to uh, be able to have these kind of more abstract thoughts and concepts, right? As it was just a, a part of our development of an increasing our, our consciousness um, alongside a lot of other theories that, that went along with that. And I think that Bitcoin itself as a basically a collective consciousness is is doing that. And then to understand that better and understand better how to um, to increase the sovereignty that that philosophy uh, extols, um, you know, through not just your personal sovereignty of, of holding your wealth, but just as, as a mindset as well, uh, it, 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 you need to have a broader understanding. So that's why I've started to really kind of delve into uh, philosophy and mimetic theory in a lot of episodes. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you as well is, is uh, uh, kind of uh, touch into these concepts of philosophy and free markets and, and a wider range. Most Bitcoiners are, are at least semi-libertarian, but, but um uh, to answer your question, I, don't, I think that the Nick Sarwark debates, uh, debate with uh, Dave was probably a little bit more inside baseball than a lot of even libertarians are kind of um, are, are really uh, into. So it, I, would, I would probably say probably 10 to 20 percent. OK, so just the, the, the broad strokes of it was basically it was the, the split that you referred to in the LP re- uh, earlier in the episode where you, you said something about um, how there's the side that's that's. Um, much more um, pragmatic that this is just a matter of of um, trying to to get political votes and 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 then there's the side that we're like this is we need to use this as a vehicle for for broadcasting a pure message and that's basically the uh, it was the split between Nick Sarwark who's the uh, the chair of the LP and Dave Smith who's a really popular libertarian podcaster who's also an, an AMCAP um, and Dave of course was representing the position that the the LP. Um, is responsible for advertising the most, by basically the most pure message possible. He said that that he thinks only the only libertarian um, presidential candidates who would be acceptable would be people who are first of all who are most prominently anti-war and anti-Fed, um, which I very much align with. Those are anti-war and anti-Fed are two 
um, two of the biggest values uh, in my own political philosophy. And then um, Sawark's position was basically that um, that I, as the chair of the LP, my responsibility is to get votes for the LP. That's my responsibility. Um, so there was a big debate back and forth between them. And the, I think the most prominent aspect of it was when when Dave asked Sarwark if uh, if he would be like, would he accept Dick Cheney as a, as a presidential candidate for the LP? And Sarwark was like, yeah. Um, and there was a lot of outrage about that because they're like, oh, Sarwark's watering down the message. But despite me not really being a fan of Sarwark personally and really disagreeing with him politically, um, I think that given his position, that he actually is right, that the, the libertarian political party's purpose is to get as many votes as possible. That's the nature of politics. This is the problem with politics. This is this is perfectly this perfectly encapsulates the issue with politics that you don't use politics to create the most pure ideal world that you want. Politics is a game of compromises and it's a game of watering things down to create the broadest general appeal. This is why the government is not a good tool for the vast majority of things, especially at, at large scales. It just is, is not because you're fitting too many people under one umbrella and that umbrella has to get um, so watered down to the point of meaninglessness for it to, to, to cover everybody. Um, this is why one of the most important things that they said in that debate that Sarwark said was, he said, my job isn't to convert people to libertarianism. Talking to Dave, he said, that's your job. And as much as it pains me to say, I think he is exactly right. That people who are content creators, we're the ones who are responsible for getting the message out to people. The If, if the liberty movement is to, is to win quote unquote, whatever that means to you, if the liberty movement is to win, ultimately, it's going to be not because people um, gained enough steam for the libertarian party. It's going to be because people persuaded enough people in their own lives, either through their content creation or through creating products that people that improve people's lives, services that, um, that, that replace government services. That's going to be where the liberty movement um, gains the most traction. And it's good to have a libertarian party just for pragmatic reasons, because like at the very least, like say the libertarian party got 5 million um, or got 5% of the vote in the next election. This last, the 2016 election was the first time that the total votes for the libertarian party covered the spread between the, the Democrat and the Republican. And what this means is that now, potentially now the libertarian party can determine who the candidate's going to be. And when that dynamic develops, now suddenly the other candidates have to pay attention to the Libertarian Party, whether it means they're trying to stamp it out or if, the, if it means they're going to try to cater to cater their message toward Libertarians. Either way, if they're trying to stamp out the Libertarian Party, great. They're, they're, they're showing who they actually are and people are going to be aware of it. It's good, you can get the message out. People are going to be aware that this corruption is happening. So that's a win. Or if they're going to start catering their message to libertarians, that's a win too. I would rather the other parties be catering their offerings to libertarians than not catering their offerings to libertarians. So that there, just one win. I'll take one win. But the, the onus is on the rest of us to be priming people to accept a libertarian political message. And if, if, if we're going to do that, it's not going to come through trying to get the best political candidate or whatever. That's going to be a consequence. Having the best political candidate elected will be a consequence of the work that we already did in the market by either entertaining people in a way like, like Eric July or Dave Smith with his stand-up comedy. Like 
um, people doing music like Eric July or Dave Smith was with his comedy or us with our podcasts or um, people that uh, uh, even like reason or some of these larger magazines that they bring an alternate perspective, being able to get that alternate alternate perspective out and have people hear it. That's what's going to going to start to open people's minds to the message. But then what's really going to be going to be most persuasive to them is if libertarian or liberty minded people make themselves extremely wealthy by providing services to other people that they couldn't live without showing them this new way of, of, of solving problems in their lives that makes their life immensely better without the help of government, getting immensely wealthy through that, and then teaching other people how to do the same thing. If everybody, if we were to wake up tomorrow and everybody knew how to make themselves wealthy without the state, the government would just dissolve basically overnight. Nobody would want it anymore. So it's up to us to convince people how to improve their own lives without the state. And we do that through culture and through business. And that's where I think the liberty movement needs to be focused. The, the last topic I, w- I wanted to touch on was, was on, on Bitcoin. I mean, I know that, uh, um, you know, having listened to the show for the while, for a while, I know that, it, it, you know, you guys have talked about it a little bit, but I didn't know how personally involved you were or, um, you know, how much you feel that that fits into, you know, the promotion of liberty and, and, uh, individual sovereignty. I've, I've studied it a little bit. I've bought some, I have a little bit. Um, and I kind of started getting into it a little more before, before it started just getting overwhelming to me. And I had a hard time wrapping my mind around all of it. Um, but then when, uh, Hotep Jesus on Twitter, he hosted a bunch of debates recently between BTC people and BCH people and BCH and BSV and BTC and BSV and all of that. And in the process of listening to each of the different people who claim to be the true Bitcoin and the process of listening to all of them um, debate why they think their Bitcoin is the best. Um, it helped me understand the technology a lot better um, and the, the, the potential of the technology. And I do agree, even though the technicals of it are still um, kind of over my head, I still do agree that the broader principle of it is it is the direction that the world is going. And, and it is going to be a positive thing for Liberty, I think. Yeah, that was, that was a really interesting development and, and, uh, you know, Hotep just kind of basically kind of jumps around at different, uh, topics and, and, but the nice thing was about him doing that was that, you know, uh, me talking about it being a religion, uh, or developing in, into that is that, I, that's also, you could probably see that very much so in, in these debates where it's, it's less about what the technology offers. And it's very much a, about, you know, our, our ritual is, is better than yours in a way, or our implementation (laughs) of this, of this ritual is better. And there are definitely, you know, the technical trade-off and, and uh, pros and cons of, of each argument. And, you know, that's what kind of on the face of it led to these splits was the technical implementations. Whereas if you look a little bit deeper, it's more about uh, the what they want to accomplish in the world and what they, they see as being uh, more important or more feasible and, and better implemented um, through through their ritual of, of, of Bitcoin and uh, implementation of it. And, you know, that was... Um, you know that that's like i said it's it's the really hard part about bitcoin is that 
the deeper you get down in that rabbit hole, uh, once you start to get into it, um, even outside just the technical aspects of it, you know, the, the deeper it kind of leads you down and the more questions that you have. Uh, and it's, it's very difficult for people, whereas that's why I see that we need to really um, focus on making these things very easy. And we are seeing that. I mean, compared to, you know, 2013, when I first came on it, it's, it's immensely changed where you had to download this kind of goofy, really bad, you know, user experience um, wallet and, you know, send it from one person to the other, where now, I mean, you do have apps and apps you can connect to your own for full node for, for verification. Um, and, you know, it, it does, it does become, uh, or it ha is becoming much easier, but, uh, but yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, Hotep was, uh, you know, I think he did a real good service for the community um, in, in that, you know, it allowed people who don't talk to each other anymore, because if you really, if you, if you not being in the community, uh, it's people that, uh, that are in different camps really don't, uh, other than just kind of uh, snarky remarks on Twitter, really don't interact with each other anymore. And it takes someone that has a high profile that says, Hey, I want to have a debate. Um, you know, that, that brings people to want to actually defend it versus, versus doing that. But um, I know that you, you know, we've gone about almost an hour and a half here. I don't want to, I don't want to keep you. I know you got a, a work to do. And, uh, but I really wanted to thank you for, for coming on. Was there, was there anything that, um, that you wanted to leave the audience with um, or as well as uh, let them know how to contact you? Yeah, um, just in the, my last thought on Bitcoin was just that um, as someone for, I'll speak to more to the, to the more um, hardcore enthusiasts, as someone who doesn't really know that much about Bitcoin still and wants to know more, um, I'll say that all of the infighting, all the bickering, all the debating over whose who's, um, iteration of it is better and the technicals, I understand why you have to have those conversations, but just understand that for people who want to adopt the technology, who want to um, understand it and want to get into it, all of that bickering makes it very, very difficult to understand. Um, because now instead of, it's already an extremely complex subject that is very difficult to, I think some people just are never going to understand. It's like quantum mechanics that it's like nobody actually understands it. And, and there's some people that probably just aren't capable of understanding it. Um, and for them, it's what we were saying earlier that you just, the people are lazy and you need to provide the thing that works for them. You don't need to tell them why it works. You don't need to, you don't need to, to persuade them of the technicals of it. You just need to make it work for them. Um, but for even for the people who are going deeper and really want to understand it, um, all of the bickering back and forth, it just turned in, it's, it's, it's turning into another form of politics. And um, that, that makes it very difficult for, for those of us who do want to learn to learn um, when we have to wade through everybody's uh, personal poo flinging back and forth. Um, but um, the last thought I have on it is just that um, ultimately it's not going to be whichever one is um, the most philosophically ideal that, that wins out, it's going to be the one that works for the most people. And I understand the way that human societies, the way that human organizations work, every single human organization all operates according to Pareto's law, the 90-10 the, the distribution. Um, in every single human pursuit, every single civilizational pursuit, there's always going to be a, an elite that um, has the most power and wealth and influence, and then the hoi polloi who do not. Um, it's, it, this is impossible to get away from. 
the best that you can do is create a system whereby the elite, despite being elites, are constrained by the function of the system that they're engaged with. Um, something that's completely trustless um, isn't possible. There's going to always have to be trust. It's just that you want the, the trust and the verification. Um, so I think I think too much of the conversation gets bogged down in in arguing about whether or not there needs to be a team of elites and and rather than accepting that there's going to be um, elites in every social organization and accepting that as a given and then figuring out how to give them the least impact on the final outcome as possible. Um, but yeah, so the best place that you can get me um, probably would be Twitter. Um, and it's my, my Twitter account is at I tweet stuff here. And then um, you can listen to the show Wealth, Power and Influence with Jason Stapleton. You just look for it on um, whatever podcatcher you use. Um, you can like the show on Facebook. If you just look for the Facebook page, Wealth, Power and Influence with Jason Stapleton. And then you can follow the show's Twitter account that um, we just created just recently, um, which is at Power Influence. Well, I, I really appreciate having you on and uh, hopefully we can talk again. Absolutely. Thanks so much, man. This was, this was a lot of fun.